ever we loved you, O oh God, it is now. When those death dews lie softly on our brow, oh, if we've ever loved you, we will love you then. Father, remind us that all of life is but a preparation for then. And all of our weak love now will be turned into powerful love then. Our desire, our desire is to see powerful love now. That our highest loyalty in life would be this Christ Jesus that we've just sung about. Oh, how we desire to have more of Him and less of us. Rule and have your way, O oh God, over your people who are at the base of their souls, so alive spiritually. We know we've failed you this week, but that is not who we are. What we are is redeemed people. We are, our lives are hidden in Christ with God. And so might we begin, O oh God, to act more and more like people whose lives have been hidden in Christ with God. Accept our monies, O oh God, use them. For one purpose, to advance the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you. In the midst of such uh, excellence, I, I hesitate to even preach, but I've got something um, I think Brad would agree that, was even, that is even more excellent than that. I want you to meet four of my friends. Come on up here, guys. Could I use this one too, Luther? We're going to have to stand over there because I don't want y'all getting close to this Steinway Grand. <laughs> I told you you didn't have to dress up, Brandon. <laughs> All right, now we're going to. Here's one, here's two, and here's three. And we'll, uh, uh, we'll, we just, we'll just pass them down. Okay, I want you to meet three of my, uh, four of my friends. Um, they, uh, every time I go downtown, I take them with me um, because they're big and ugly enough to, uh, to protect us all. Uh, on this end, this is Lewis Gamble. Lewis, tell them how old you are. I'm 18. And you went to high school where? At Houston High School across the street. And you are doing what in the fall? This fall I'm going to attend the University of Memphis. Okay, I'll get back to you in a minute. This is Brandon Addison over here. Uh, another uh, friend of mine who I played basketball. He made me look so bad and hurt me so badly. But this is Brandon Addison. He just went to, uh, graduated from where? Houston High School. And you're how old? Nineteen. Nineteen. Uh, he was a little slow. Um, and, and in the fall, uh, Brandon will be doing what? I will be attending the University of Georgia in Athens. I'm so sorry to hear that. Uh, the University of Georgia. And then we have Wes Baker over here. There's another friend of mine, and you graduated? This year. Okay. You graduated this year from where? Cordova High School. And you're how old? Nineteen. Nineteen, and you'll be doing what in the fall? Going to Mississippi State. Mississippi State, all right. And then down on the end down there is Austin Dalgo. Austin is uh, a graduate from where? From Houston High School. Houston High School, and you're going to be doing what in the fall? I'll be attending the University of Alabama. And that really is sad. Uh, <laughs> all right, um, these are guys who are all new Christians. Lewis, how long have you been a Christian? Probably a little less than two years. Brandon? Three years. Wes? Three and a half. Austin? About two. <laughs> and uh, tell me just a little bit, Lewis. I, we don't have a whole lot of time. Okay. Just tell me a little bit how you came into the Lord. Well, um, 
It happened, uh, it actually happened here, but it happened after a trip I took to the Grand Canyon. And uh, when I went there, uh, these, I went with a couple of Christians. Uh, my friend wasn't a Christian, but his uh, stepfather and mother were. And they took us, and we had like a whole eight-hour car ride to debate. And uh, I realized later there wasn't really anything to debate. Uh, I was wrong. I accepted Christ into my life uh, shortly after I came back. And here I am. Great. Uh, Brandon, how long have you been a Christian? Three years. A little three. over three years. A little over three years. All right. Now, how did you come to know the Lord? Well, it all started with a bad, I guess, high school transition experience. Uh, throughout my life, I thought everything was all right, fine, and dandy, and I had a carefree attitude about life. But uh, in high school, I noticed voids and bouts of depression. I remember telling a friend that I felt like I was walking aimlessly in the dark in a box. No point or purpose, no rhyme or reason in life. So I got curious about those things. Um, I saw actually a Bible on his bookshelf before, before he became a Christian. And uh, I decided to read that and get curious about that. So I read a couple things and I learned A, that I was a sinner. B, God can't stand sin. And C, Christ, Christ's death on the cross can atone for that. Um, I struggled with that for, for a couple months. And then actually a death in my, with, with a friend of mine, he actually committed suicide. Uh, showed me that Christ was the Savior, and it showed me that life is life is not in my own hands at all. Um, shortly thereafter, I came to the youth group, and that's where all my growth happened. Uh, the youth group was so great for me was because uh, in my life, I didn't have any influences around my life. I had no Christian friends, anything like that. Uh, the youth group nourished me and was my refuge, and I needed that. Great. Thanks. Wes, how long have you been a Christian? Uh, three and a half years. Tell us a little bit about that. We only have a l- little bit of time. Um, when my family moved here, um, we went from Texas, and we started coming here. I think it was the first or second church we visited. And this was really the first time I truly heard the gospel, man's sinfulness and Christ-saving power. Um, and I soon came to believe that, I guess, that January or December. And I've been here ever since. Great. Austin, how long have you been a Christian? I've been a Christian for about two years now. Um, basically, the, the whole story is... I don't really know one exact point when I became a Christian. Uh, there are several events throughout my childhood and my life that really sparked it. Basically, one of my friends took me to church one time. I was in about eighth grade, and I was sitting in this youth room, and I, I'd never really been in the church I'd been to before was. Uh, I didn't learn very much. It was not very fun for a, a middle school kid sitting through church. So I, I was looking around at the sign, and it said, that Jesus is God, and I never even knew that by eighth grade. And here in the Bible Belt, you think pretty much everybody knows that, but I had no idea. And so I, I started going there a little bit. Uh, also, my friend that took me to church, I saw on his on his desk he had a prayer list, and he had you know mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, and then he had my name on it. And I that baffled me. I didn't. I didn't know people prayed for me. I mean, much less... I said the same prayer every night. It was the same thing. And that someone would pray for me was amazing. And another thing that changed me, I think that actually I had saving knowledge of Christ, was when I went to the youth retreat my sophomore year at Grace Van. Uh, I didn't even know what the Trinity was. I had to keep asking uh, my leader uh, what the three parts of the Trinity were. So uh, that was really when I became... I think when I became a Christian because... I actually started learning about God, and I, I knew who He was then. And I can just see God's providence throughout my conversion that uh, He was working for about three or four years 
uh, to help me. All right, hold on there. Um, one of the things that I wanted you to see is what God is doing in our youth program. Unbelievable. There was one other guy we wanted to have, but he had to go to school. Um, one of these guys, by the way, is contemplating the ministry. I'm not going to tell you which one. I'll let you kind of guess. I want you to say, tell them one more thing. These four guys all came back, just went with our youth program to Guatemala, where there were, only, there were over five, excuse me, over 4,000 responses to their presentation of the gospel. Their presentation of the gospel was done in mime form, and as I understand it, the guy in the blue shirt wrote it? Uh, didn't write it, I guess. The original idea. The original idea, and then the rest of you wrote it together? Unbelievable. Lewis, I want you to just stay briefly. What the Guatemala trip meant to you? Um, I pretty much learned two pretty huge things from it. Uh, the first being that if in God's eyes we're all sinners equally as guilty as uh, one another, you and I are just as guilty in God's eyes as the people in the correctional facilities that killed people. Uh, seeing some of those kids that had minimal, they had clothes on their back uh, for some of them and that was it. That it was only by God's grace that I was born into a family in Germantown that would love me as much as they do. And I thought that was incredible. Um, the second being that, uh, uh, I don't know if you guys know Tom Bonanno, but he's joked about this for like the past week. Uh, we sounded horrible. We, we, we played music to these guys, and only, I think four of us were, uh, not, not me, he was one that could actually sing. Uh, only four of us were musically inclined. And uh, knowing that and seeing, still seeing the response that we got, that showed how much the Holy Spirit was working over us. I, I also learned that God used us as a tool. It was, it was not us that was uh, up there playing and that those kids were hearing. They were hearing the gospel and the Holy Spirit. And that's another thing I learned. Brandon, what did the Guatemala trip mean to you? Um, it showed me how much I underestimated the power of the gospel. I mean, back in Acts, they converted hordes of people. And I was astonished at the numbers and just the receptiveness of the crowd. And it showed me my lack of a, a my, my underestimated power of the gospel and my lack of zeal for some people also. Uh, it showed me spiritual, I guess, my, my, my I guess, I'm where, the places where I'm lacking in my spiritual life. And it, it was amazing. I mean, great. Wes? What did the Guatemala trip mean to you? Um, it showed me God's providence over pretty much everything that went on. Um, I didn't have to pay for the trip. I just asked friends and family, so they sent money. And I had an overwhelming response from that. And then when we went through customs, we just walked through. And then from then on, the trip was pretty much no problems whatsoever. It just went extra smooth, showing that God was in charge Great. of the entire thing. Austin, close this up. I would say... Briefly. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I would say that... The harmony of the body of Christ. Uh, our group worked, not, not that it was us at all, but our group had a great attitude, and we all worked together pretty well. And I saw that the impact it would make on that, the unbelieving world, that if a group worked together, and you know, if we we're one body in Christ, then we could affect this world so much more if we, if we were more united. Great. Ladies and gentlemen, You've got to know what a privilege I think it is to be the pastor of a congregation where this is going on. And I hope you feel the great sense of God's Spirit moving in the lives of some people around this church. Thank you, men. Thank you very much.
I know you're wondering, oh my goodness, it's 10.15, we're going to be here at 11. Not quite. Uh, I'll, I'll, um, I'll carve off a few things and um, we'll make this faster. Turn with me really quick, though, to Genesis, excuse me, to Joshua chapter 20. Joshua chapter 20. It's the first book after um, the Pentateuch. So find Deuteronomy and go one more right, and there it is, Joshua 20. Let me read you nine verses from Joshua 20. The Lord also spoke to Joshua, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, saying, Appoint for yourselves cities of refuge, of which I spoke to you through Moses, that the slayer who kills a person accidentally or unintentionally may flee there. And they, shall be your refuge, and they shall be your refuge from the avenger of blood. And when he flees to one of those cities and stands at the entrance of the gate of the city and declares his case in the hearing of the elders of that city, they shall take him into the city as one of them and give him a place that he may dwell among them. Then if the avenger of blood pursues him, they shall not deliver the slayer into his hand because he struck his neighbor unintentionally but did not hate him beforehand. And he shall dwell in that city until he stands before the congregation for judgment and until the death of the one who is high priest in those days. Then the slayer may return and come to his own city and his own house to the city from which he fled." So they appointed Kedesh in Galilee in the mountains of Naphtali, Shechem in the mountains of Ephraim, and Kirjath Arba, Arba, which is Hebron, in the mountains of Judah. And on the other side of the Jordan, by Jericho eastward, they assigned Bezer in the wilderness on the plain from the tribe of Reuben, Ramoth in Gilead from the tribe of Gad, and Golan in Bashan from the tribe of Manasseh. These were the cities appointed for all the children of Israel and for the stranger who dwelt among them, that whoever killed a person accidentally might flee there and not die by the hand of the avenger of blood until he stood before the congregation. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God, it endures forever. This whole idea of avenge or um, cities of refuge, that might be something brand new to you. Maybe you've never heard of the cities of refuge. Well, let me tell you what they were or explain them just a little bit more fully. It's really rather simple. It's not to rocket science at all. What it was, uh, what God did was before the nation of Israel moved in the promised land, he commanded Moses that six cities be set aside and designated as uh, cities of refuge. So they moved into the promised land, and uh, this, of course, was passed on to Joshua. And these six cities of refuge, dotting the whole countryside, uh, were designed to be places of refuge for those who had killed somebody accidentally. Let's say you're out in the woods and you're chopping wood, you're chopping a tree down, and your axe head uh, slips off the end and flies off and hits somebody in the head and kills them. Well, what you were to do is to run to a city of refuge. And interestingly enough, uh, those cities of refuge, um, the roads leading to the cities of refuge were to be some of the finest roads that Israel had. They were to be unencumbered, that is, uh, unhindered in a, in a person trying to get to a city of refuge. And once safely inside, he could seek a fair trial. And if he was uh, found to be innocent, and it was to be accidental in nature, then he was to remain in that city of refuge until the high priest died. And when the high priest died, this man who had slain someone accidentally was then allowed to return to his home without fear of any reprisal. That's the city of refuge. 
And what a great concept. What a great provision. You know, who could have thought of something that genius, except it be our God? A God of mercy and grace. A God who wants to make sure His people know that there are places of refuge when things go wrong. You know, one of my favorite words in the Bible is the word refuge. Uh, When I go through the Psalms, I try to find the word refuge over and over again. And it's not hard to find. David uses the word frequently. David is always using the word refuge. Um, Because apparently he often found it, he often found that his surroundings were assaulting him or threatening him. And so he was quite frequently seeking a refuge. You know, I love to tell this story. I've told it before in here, but I never tire of telling the story. I hope you don't tire of hearing it. But it was about when my children were six and four, when Gracie was six and Megan was four, and and they had a next-door neighbor friend who was five. So there was six, five, and four, and um, they used to play together all the time. And, of course, as you know, as parents, uh, when the trio got together to play, the four-year-old always got the short end of the stick. Nothing made me matter as a father as to watch my six-year-old and the neighborhood five-year-old be mean to my four-year-old. And so I'd be outside raking leaves or cutting grass, and and, uh, my little four-year-old, when she was feeling assaulted, would come and run and hide her head between my knees and just bawl. Because she was looking for a place of safety, a place of refuge, a place where she knew that she could find a bit of safety. Well, shelters are hard to come by these days. You know, those places where people can go, where they can find people who care enough to listen to them. Uh, People who are uh, good at keeping secrets. Uh, A place which is a safe harbor. Where I can uh, flee from a storm. You know, maybe we should give some idea, some thought to recreating some of those cities of refuge. You think? Well, somebody's beat us to the punch, ladies and gentlemen. He's way ahead of us. Someone who knew needs like that would exist and has already made provision for refuge. That someone is God, and his provision is the church. Now, ladies and gentlemen, I'm in a series for the summertime uh, that's entitled... How to build an irresistible testimony. Well, let's forget about us as individuals this morning and let's talk about us corporately. What would be the kind of place where those who were seeking refuge could find it? A place where they would really sense that people care to listen and are good at keeping their mouths shut and would find a place that they felt safe. I want you to listen to a quote that I found um, in the John Stott book. The book is entitled One People. Listen to this. The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. It's an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality. But it is a permissive, accepting, and inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. It is democratic. You can tell people secrets and they usually don't tell others or even want to. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, 
but because God has put into the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved, and so many seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. With all my heart, says Stott, I believe that Christ wants his church to be a fellowship where people can come in and say, I'm sunk. I've had it. Well, speaking of bars, ladies and gentlemen, I guess the most famous bar in America was the one in Boston, the one that gave rise to the television series Cheers. Did you ever watch that? Apparently, uh, I didn't watch much of it. I, I've seen more of the reruns than I saw when it was really on. But um, apparently, this, these authors of this TV show, of the sitcom, were depicting a normal experience for a very large segment of our society. Um, you know, why did those regulars keep coming week after week or night after night to the same pub? Was it because they were alcoholics and they loved to drink? Well, you know, ladies and gentlemen, um, uh, bars frown on that kind of overindulgence. It gets them in a hot, lot of, uh, hot water. It wasn't that. Then what was it that kept them coming night after night to uh, drink their beer and sit at the bar? Well, did you ever listen to the theme song of Cheers? I, I try to remember the tune, but I'm, I, I'm not big on the tune. But do you remember some of the words of the theme song of Cheers? You know, the thing that they sang as they were introducing the stars and as they were saying goodbye? Part of it says this. Uh, everybody is seeking a place where, quote, everybody knows your name. It goes on to say, the world is crying out, quote, is anybody there? Does anyone know my name? Does anybody care that I'm alive? The reruns are on now, and they're on on Saturday afternoon. And you might remember, I did not watch it when it first showed, but they've rerun it. Uh, this much-touted finale of uh, Cheers. You know, the last episode of Cheers, the, the famous sitcom. And ladies and gentlemen, what you found was pitiful. It was pitiful and disarmingly honest. What it was, was Sam and Diane, you know them, who were still deceiving each other about their happiness and still struggling to discover any kind of a, of a meaningful relationship. And then the other cast members, the other stars, um, began to filter out one by one, heading back to their lonely, pitiful little worlds. And what you, the audience was, or the message the audience got is that the, that the only thing that bound these people together was that bar. And when that bar was closed, there was going to be nothing else for these people. What they were all desperately seeking, community and fellowship, was now gone for them. They, did no longer had, they no longer had a community where somebody knew their name. My friends, where do you go when the bottom drops out? Where do you go when you just discovered that your daughters are practicing homosexual? Or that your wife is having an affair? Or that you've lost your job and it's your own fault? Where do you go when you find out that one of your parents is an alcoholic? Or your 
son has run away for the third time and you think he's on drugs. Where do you go when financially you've blown it and you've blown it bad? Where is it that you find refuge? Do you have a bar that you could recommend for the rest of us? You know, gang, ultimately, when David was seeking refuge, this is where he turned. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defense. Save me. But I'm suggesting, ladies and gentlemen, that in addition to the refuge that God is for us, He also sends His people to another place where they're supposed to find refuge. And I'm suggesting that not only is He refuge, but He has designed His people to be such that they provide refuge. Now, why is that so rare? I think it's tragic that people seeking community come to church, including this one, and what is it that they often find? You answer that. Why is it that people flee from church instead of fleeing to it? And as they flee, they're crying all the while, Nobody spoke to us. We never fit in. We were never included. Now, ladies and gentlemen, is any of that true here? Is any degree of it our fault? If it is true, I, I don't know. But I do know that I hear the word a lot. The word that I hate it every time I hear it. I heard it last night. Yes, the word. Click. With a Q. And I hear it an awful lot, particularly about junior high and senior high kids. Doesn't it bug you, or am I the only one? Doesn't it bug you that the average bar is more accepting, less judgmental, and more inclusive than we are? And not only that, they can keep a secret far better than we can too. Let one of you, let one of you have a blowout. And I say to you, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sorry. I, I just got news of a blowout a couple of weeks ago, and I thought I was one of three people on the face of the planet that knew it. I mean, somebody comes to me and says, I've got to tell you something, Jimmy. You've got to know this. And you've got to know this. And I've got to tell you. I said, okay. I, you know, you know. And I did. When you tell me to keep my mouth shut, I keep my mouth shut. Within 24 hours, I discovered... That at a very large country club in town, everybody in, in, in the country club knew it and was talking about it. How did that happen? I didn't tell anybody. 
Does any of that sting? Or, or is any of it true of us? Can those investigating Christianity find refuge here? Well, I want to suggest that we make a commitment to one another. A commitment to change from now on. Now until we enter glory. And I want to, t- I want to give you six suggestions how we can change. And I've got to do these fast. Number one, next week we'll be serving cheap draft beer out in the food court. <laughs> That's just a joke. That's just a joke. <clears throat> Number one, all of us had best realized, ladies and gentlemen, that the measurement of Christian maturity is not Exodus 20, where we find the law. But the measurement of Christian maturity is 1 Corinthians 13. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm not trying to undercut obedience, but I'm telling you Mormons obey. That which measures and gives criteria for our Christian maturity, do not look to Exodus 20. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 13. And then begin to measure you individually and us corporately by that standard. Second, I beg you, I'm, I'm, I'm here... Begging you, would you please take seriously that five-minute rule that we put in place? What is so difficult about taking the first five minutes after every service and thinking, I'm headed straight for someone who I think, I don't know, might need refuge? You know, why is that so, such a difficult demand on the people of God? Let me tell you, after the first five minutes, you won't have a shot because they're gone. They're gone. And we might even get the notion that even that stupid little handshaking time just might be a chance for us to welcome someone needing refuge. Thirdly, I'd like for you to meditate this week on a text that I found in Colossians 1 in my own devotions. I want to read it to you. And I want to ask you to meditate on it this week and just figure out what it says. This is Colossians 1, uh, 7 and 8. As you also learn from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, here it is, who also declared to us your love in the Spirit. Now, ladies and gentlemen, what does the Spirit of God have to do with us loving each other and newcomers? Go meditate on that question. Go take a long, deep look at Colossians 1.8. Fourthly, I want you to commit yourself, I'm a, a suggestion, I want to suggest that you commit yourself to do one act of reach out per Sunday in this building. One act. Um, don't wait for somebody to, or demand that somebody come up and do something for you. One time a week, one time a Sunday morning while you're in this building, one reach-out event, you, you name it. Fifth, resist anything that hints of clickishness and embrace anything that builds community. Sixth, get beyond, way beyond this us-versus-them mentality. 
Jerem Bars said that the church more resembles a foxhole into which we all, well, we Christians kind of gather to hide and lob cannonade over against them. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. I don't know how that happened. But ladies and gentlemen, we're supposed to be a place where them can find the same refuge we found. I, I promise you, people who are investigating Christianity don't need more critics. If they're investigating our faith, ladies and gentlemen, they heard enough already. They don't need more guilt piled on. They need encouragement. They need a refuge, a place to hide and heal and hear of hope. Can they find that here? You think? If so, if they do, I want to suggest to you that you and I are going to have the prized privilege of getting them to show, or getting the chance to show them where you and I found refuge. We're going to get a chance to show them where the real refuge is to be found in the one that David called my strength, my mighty rock, my fortress, my stronghold, my shield, my high tower, my refuge. If we can distribute a drip of that, then we get the chance to tell them where we found our ultimate refuge. I've got to read this, guys. It's rather long, but I think you're going to enjoy it. So let me do it fast and we'll, we're finished. This guy, who an unknown author, tells this story about a dangerous seacoast. And I think it's a, a nonfiction piece, but uh, a dangerous seacoast where many ships were frequently wrecked on this seacoast. And there, on that seacoast, there once existed a life-saving station. The building was just a hut, and there was only one boat, but the few devoted volunteers kept a constant watch over the sea. With no thought for their safety, they went out day and night, tirelessly rescuing the lost. Many lives were saved, and the station became famous. Some of those who were saved, along with others in the surrounding area, wanted to become associated with that station. They gave time, money, and effort to support its work. They bought new boats and trained new crews, and the life-saving station grew. Some of those who volunteered at the station soon became upset that the building was so crude and poorly equipped. They felt a more comfortable place should be provided as the first refuge of those saved from the sea. So they replaced the emergency cots and beds and put better furniture in a new, larger building. As a result, the life-saving station became a popular gathering place for its volunteers. They decorated it exquisitely and began to use it as a club and even charged membership dues. Because fewer members were now interested in going to sea on life-saving missions, they hired lifeboat crews to do the work. The life-saving motif still prevailed on the club emblems and stationery, however... Uh, or, however, and there was a symbolic lifeboat in the room where club initiations were held. About this time, a large ship was wrecked off the coast, and the hired crews brought in loads of cold, wet, half-drowned people. Because these survivors were dirty and sick, they soon messed up the beautiful new club. So the property committee immediately had a shower built outside the club where the shipwrecked victims could be cleaned up before coming inside. 
At the next meeting, there was a split in the club membership. Most of the members wanted to stop the life-saving activities altogether because they thought it was a hindrance and unpleasant to the normal social life of the club. Other members insisted on life-saving as their primary purpose and pointed out that, after all, the club was still a life-saving station. But those members were finally voted down and told that if they wanted to save the lives of various people shipwrecked in those waters, they could begin their own life-saving station down the coast, which they did. As the years went by, the new station gradually faced the same problems the other one had experienced. It too evolved into a club, and its life-saving work became less and less of a priority. The few members who remained dedicated to life-saving, or saving lives, founded yet another life-saving station. History continued to repeat itself, and if you visit that coast today, you'll find a number of exclusive clubs along the shore. Shipwrecks are still frequent. But most of the people drowned. Ladies and gentlemen, wrapping blankets around half-drowned people is dirty work. But it is the work that was given to us. A club... A club would be... Shall we say so much more suitable to meet my needs. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the essence of the problem. What do you want? You want a club? Or would you have a, rather have a life-saving station? Yay. A city of refuge. You think about it. Let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you'll forgive us and make us people who understand our task, our job, our mission, and that you would enable us to make the, to perform that mission and to perform it well. Oh God, we commit ourselves to that end and pray for the power and empowerment of the Holy Ghost of God as we... As we repent and as we come to do the work entrusted to the people of God, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.